1: From BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, we sit here to record this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast on Monday afternoon, almost two full days following UFC 217, which I would say was a recharging night of fights, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I feel recharged. And we're also staring down the barrel of UFC Fight Night 120 this weekend, featuring Dustin Poirier and Anthony Pettis in the main event down there in Norfolk.
0: Oh, yeah. Norfolk.
1: Norfolk, Virginia. There you go. And that puts the co-main event podcast in in a little bit of a bind. How so, Chief? Well, they're good problems to have, I guess you could say, because, you know, so much happened at UFC 217. I'm not sure that it fits into our normal structure of the show. Like a glove, it doesn't fit in that well. You're
0: saying that now's the time for us to break out and go free form, like I've been asking us to do for months now?
1: Well, I'll tell you what we're gonna do. Just
0: feel it flowy. As
1: agreed upon to our during our copious pre-production meetings for this show. Well what you and I have elected to do here is stick with the normal three round format of the co main event podcast. But in all likelihood, this episode of the show will be supersized.
0: Yeah. let's. Everybody should think of each round as if they're all the first round in a Pride event.
1: Because we want to make sure we have enough time to talk about all the stuff that needs to be talked about. But
0: also, like the first round in Pride, we will get gassed out toward the end of each round. And it it will, it will start to seem like a bad idea. Also,
1: like Pride, it's going to seem like we're kind of making up the rules as we go along.
0: Sure. And... If you if you fuck around and mess up, I'm going to issue you a yellow card and dock some of your pay.
1: And I have a camera fixed to my glasses. <laughs> this is exciting. I know. It's just something we've never done before. So, frankly, we don't know how long this is going to take.
0: Also, you mentioned UFC Fight Night 120, and we will talk a little bit about it. But we discussed it, and we decided the people are not tuning in to the podcast the Monday after UFC 217 because they want to hear a whole lot of time dedicated to... To Dustin Poirier and Anthony Pettis. No offense to those two guys. That's an interesting fight. We will get around to talking about it somewhat. But let's just say the usual focus where we talk a little bit about what happened and then end with talking about what's going to happen, we kind of get away from that a little bit. And I think you understand why.
1: Well, the, the entire demographic that turned in, into this podcast to hear us talk about Nate Marquardt against Cesar Ferrara I just all went, oh.
0: Yeah. Well, you know what? <laughs> those people have a lot of disappointment ahead of them just in general.
1: Bottom line, we don't know how long this is going to take. We don't know if this podcast will be released in one part or two. You're just going to have to bear with us. And we're making it longer by talking about what we're going to talk about. The co-main event podcast and our longtime sponsors at Fulton & Rourke are excited to announce that the week one winner of the great Movember grooming and styling contest is our guy Andrew Millington for what he described as his, quote, freshly shorn hawk and beard
0: man am i alone in feeling like the description really helped him out there hawk and beard sounds pretty awesome
1: well did you see the picture the picture was pretty awesome.
0: Yeah, i did see the picture hawk and beard I mean, sounds like a 70s duo detective tv show
1: it ain't no coincidence that he won right i see, I see. probably for description and picture combined this
0: this week hawk and beard Get into some stuff down at the docks.
1: The good folks at Fulton and Rourke are going to get an awesome gift set out to Andrew in the mail so he can stay looking fresh. But don't despair. If you entered and didn't win this week, or if you screwed the pooch and forgot to enter, there's still plenty of time left to score yourself from free stuff... From Fulton and Rourke and the CME this month, Ben, tell the kids at home how they can pull it off.
0: It's easy, Chad. November is in full swing, which means it's the month when many men traditionally forego shaving to raise awareness around some serious men's health issues, including prostate and testicular cancer. As we let everybody know last week, this year Fulton and Rourke want to give the power back to the people, giving men the right to choose their own way to mark the month of Movember. Grow a mustache, don't grow a mustache, basically whatever personal grooming decision makes you feel good, that's all you gotta do. But because it is an important month to spend some time reflecting on men's health, Fulton and Rourke wanted to give everybody the chance to do it in
1: style. That's where the Great Movember Grooming and Styling Contest comes in. Every week during the month of November, Fulton and Rourke will give away a free prize pack of their world-class men's grooming products to the CME listener who shows the most ingenuity, creativity, and stick to with their grooming routine. Uh, just tweet a picture of your facial hair to me and Ben. Again, that's at Chad Dundas and at BenFolksMMA. And once a week, we'll pick the guy with the most inspiring quaff, announce it on the podcast, and the dudes at Fulton and Rourke will send you some free stuff. If you aren't active on social media, don't worry. Just email a picture to co main at gmail.com, and it works just the same. That's one winner every week, but to be considered, you got to send us those pics Get started on your stash and sideburns today, and remember that this month, everything that you buy at Fulton and Rourke uh, still goes to make a difference because 15% of all profits will go to cancer research, treatment, and prevention. Congrats again to Andrew for being the first winner, but there's still plenty of time to get the rest of you to pony up and win some stuff, too. Again, that's FultonandRourke.com. We got music again this week from our MMA media crony Jared Jones and his band Life Before Science. Uh they just put out an EP called Horizons, and if you like what you hear on the podcast, you can download it from their Bandcamp page for just four bucks. That's life science dot slash releases. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the Co Main Event Podcast, though they may get funky. In round number one, oh yeah, so I guess George St. Pierre was a karate guy at one time. Good to know. And in round number two, the men's bantamweight title fight ends with Cody Garbrandt doing his best Undertaker impression, his eyes all kinds of rolling back in his head. And as for TJ Dillashaw, bring on the mouse. And in round number three, got to give a shout out to CME listener Jessica Hudnall for the new nickname, because with her message of positivity and inclusivity after beating Joanna Yejacek, Rose Namajunas may have effectively transformed herself from Thug Rose to Hug Rose. all that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff but first like we always do about this time let's do a little bit of listener mail listener mail The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Devin Scott. He writes, When was the last time you watched a UFC event and still felt the buzz the next day? There's obviously a lot to discuss when it comes to the individual fights uh, at UFC 217, but I'm curious to know what you thought of the night of fights as a whole. Was this a throwback to what what made you fans of MMA with its competitive fights, spectacular finish, winning underdogs, respectful athletes, shenanigans, and a real... And real shit show due to a lack of basic understanding of the rules. Please go on and discuss.
0: Yeah, I I will say that I was talking with my wife earlier. And even she was saying, you know, this is Monday morning. And she was like, wow, I'm actually still thinking about uh, that UFC event. And I can't remember that, kind of the last time that that has happened. Which, I don't know if that's saying something bad about the doldrums that the UFC has been in. Or if it's just saying something awesome about this particular fight card. But yeah, this was one where not only did you find yourself feeling a little bit of buzz beforehand, but the way it turned out, and I think the just the again-and-again again kind of surprises of three titles all changing hands left you feeling like it's going to take a couple days to process that.
1: Yeah, it's hard to remember another event, uh, even in the pantheon of great mixed martial arts events, where you get three title upsets in a row, coupled with the return of an all-time great in George St. Pierre. Uh, who does something, frankly, amazing by moving up a weight class and winning the title in his first fight in, in four years in the UFC. And you also, from the undercard of this this event, uh, you got a bunch of uh, highlight reel stoppages, a spinning back elbow, a head kick. You got yourself a disqualification yeah. just for good measure. A little bit of everything. So, yeah, it's hard for me to remember a single UFC event that I felt like um, had everything that UFC 217 offered once it was all said and done. And then again, I, I think you also have to factor into account the the high prof- profile nature of the event, just because, you know, you could get a fight night with the 52,000 fight nights we do every year that has, you know, a, a, a menu of highlight reel finishes, but this one obviously uh, really meant something in, in terms of the landscape of the sport and, and just the, the magnitude of the spectacle. So, It kind of had something for everybody, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I guess
0: I would have to go back at least to UFC 205 to find another one that really felt that momentous. You know, that that one also, Madison Square Garden, where Conor McGregor uh, beat Eddie Alvarez to become a two-division champion. So that alone kind of felt like you were watching history. Also, uh, history in the sense that it was, to date, the last interesting fight that Tyron Woodley has been in, that uh, majority draw with Stephen Thompson. Um, you and Jaychik also on that one, uh, beat Carolina Kovalevich, And then, uh, you all Romero went all buck wild on Chris Weidman, which was kind of sad. Uh, and I believe that was also Misha Tate's last fight, right? She lost that fight to Raquel Pennington and then decided to retire afterwards. Uh, so that one, when you look back also had a similar feel, but you're right. This one, the fact that you, you woke up the next day going, wow, did all that stuff really happen? Um, that makes it special.
1: Yeah, and at the top of the show, I called it a recharging night of fights, which I think is how you feel if you are involved in this industry like you and I are. I don't know if if fans necessarily uh, experience it the same way, but when you've got as many live events as the UFC uh, does at this stage in its history, it can start to feel like a grind, you know, especially here toward the end of the year where you're getting 11 events in 12 weeks or whatever it is. Uh, And so to have what i in bellator they would refer to as a tentpole event but just like a a you know a high profile big time ufc card come along that feels special and delivers on its promise as much as ufc 217 did on saturday night just um it it felt like kind of what we needed i think you, you you have nights like this and then you remember oh yeah like this is this is what this sport is capable of and this is why uh i was drawn to this sport in the first place because of of you know everything that it can give you, and and in th- in this case, you got it kind of all in one night.
0: Also, probably what the UFC needed, because according to uh, Dana White, and this one, this one is actually not that hard to believe that they might have broken a million pay-per-view buys with this one. Which, when you look at the the menu, you should have, you know, you should have it should have been a huge pay-per-view event for you. And this was one where you might have actually convinced the people who elected to sit it out that they'd done messed up, that they should have plop down their 60 bucks and watch this one.
1: Yeah, well, and in just a couple of weeks ago I, on this show we were saying that you know 500,000 might be a good benchmark for this pay-per-view that if it went under 500,000 we would consider that to be maybe a disappointment and if it went over that seemed like it would be a success. So, if indeed the UFC did break over 1 million with UFC 217, I would say that that I'm a little bit surprised at that, but they did get uh, a good media push the final week before the fight. And I think especially up in Canada, they yeah, had a good mainstream like a lot of help media in push the week of the fight. So obviously uh, a huge success for the Ultimate Fighting Championship, if if it did indeed uh, crack that one million pay-per-view buys uh, mark. And I think also good news for George St. Pierre, right? Because we were kind of wondering leading up to this fight, would people remember the dude? And if 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 it really was that successful at the box office – uh, I would think the answer to that would be a resounding yes.
0: Oh, uh, and if you done forgot about GSP, he went and reminded he you.
1: He sure did. Uh, next question this week from the Cheeseburger Walrus. He writes, can we officially label Johnny Hendricks a has-been now? One in five in his last six fights, and he's been finished in his last two. I feel like the best thing we can say in his loss to Paulo Boricina uh, is that he actually made weight. What's next for Big Rig? Continue to stick around in the UFC as a quote-unquote former champ. Uh, the young guy can run over, or is he Bellator bound?
0: Paulo Costa, now.
1: Yeah, we did a name change.
0: Yeah. And I'm for this name change. If you make your name easier to spell and shorter, more power to you, brother.
1: Right. And this is one where I believe uh, Paulo Costa is Paulo Costa's real name, right? And before we were going with Paulo Boracina because, as is often the case with Brazilian mixed martial artists, sometimes the nickname becomes a stand in for the last name. Right. And Boracina was his nickname. Uh, and so. You know me, Ben. If you get knee-deep in your UFC career and then decide you're going to change your name, I will take issue with you. So I feel like (laughs) Paulo Costa kind of did this at exactly the right time. Yeah. Like, this is sort of a breakout win for him. It feels like he is going to be a player in that UFC middleweight division. So it's good for him, I think, to get out ahead of the curve and uh, go ahead and do the name change now rather than, you know, two years down the road.
0: And as for this question about Johnny Hendricks – I would say two things, one, uh can we officially label him a has been yes, sadly, and i don't I don't do that lightly. I don't like to you know jump back and forth on those kind of things, and then he wins one fight, and then hey he's back and he's going to take over. but yeah, we've seen the trajectory now, and it's Always heading in one direction. Also, if he's going to stick around uh, as the UFC, as the former champ, the young guys can run over, that's what you saw him doing on Saturday night. That's what he was there to do. This was a very unfriendly matchup to Johnny Hendricks to put him in there in this fight. The UFC knew what they were doing here. This was the fight to try to get Paulo Costa over a little bit by having him go out there against a former champ who he seemed pretty obviously he was going to take apart. uh, And, you know, look like a a damn underwear model in the process and then you know he gets a big push on this big fight card and it went just exactly according to plan at the expense of johnny hendrix who goes out there and gets beat up again
1: yeah paulo costa doesn't just look good getting off the bus he is the damn bus right he's he's something something to see
0: and he beat bang boche so he beat the bang bus as sir nigel calls him
1: wow okay
0: uh, you know, we've the only good nickname Sir Nigel's ever come up with. We, give him that.
1: We talked a little bit earlier about all the stuff that this sport can give you kind of a weird coincidence. I would say that George St. Pierre's last fight at UFC 167 in November, of 2013 was that slobber knocker against Johnny Hendricks. And then you fast forward four years. You got George St. Pierre in the main event against Michael Bisping here and Johnny Hendricks on the card in the pay-per-view opener against Paulo Costa. And it, it kind of underscores how unsuccessful Johnny Hendricks has been uh in this interim time period all while George St. Pierre has been out, because he did go uh three and seven or something like that uh in that time frame and, and definitely came to this fight looking like the guy they called up because Paulo Costa needs some good work out there in the cage.
0: And how much should we be concerned that it seems like something is a little off with Johnny these days personally. Like, before, you know, you'd see him show up and he, for the last couple fights, there's always some kind of weird moment like in the media scrums or in the pre-fight interviews where you're wondering, what's going on with your boy Johnny Hendricks? And then sometimes, you know, he'll come in and miss weight and you're like, okay, maybe he was starving and delirious and that explains it. This time he makes weight with the towel but first has to go on a long explanation about how he didn't screw up his weight cut, he just uh, miscalculated how much his underwear weighed and the entire time you're watching it and it feels just a little bit awkward and you're wondering, is is this kind of the, the pressure of the situation he's in? Like he kind of feels the desperation. What's going on here with Johnny?
1: It's very weird. And it was potentially weirder the, the time before this when he, I guess he was sick and he did end up ma- making weight. But he had that just bizarre media scrum where he was drinking the water and was like just kind of free associating and being weird. This time around... I even wondered like is like is Johnny Hendricks just trying to be interesting? is he trying to do something that's gonna make him quote unquote marketable or or you know funny he's trying to make light of his previous way in uh mistakes like is he trying to to take that head on and like uh turn it into a joke and kind of uh you know in his own sort of quirky style do something that that sets him apart but if if indeed that was the case, like I think he kind of missed the mark a little bit like uh, you come away from this once again just feeling like, "Wow, Johnny Hendricks is is kind of a weird dude." Is he
0: headed for Bellator?
1: To, I mean, I'm sure Bellator would have him, right? You'd think so. It's hard for me to imagine, given what we've seen, that he would even be that successful over there, though. Just because you see guys, you know, like Gegard Musasi and 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 uh, Ryan Bader, Phil Davis. Uh, Lorenz Larkin Lorenz Larkin Rory McDonald Lots of those guys Go over to Bellator And they don't have The soft landing That they anticipated So Brian Bader's a champ For a guy like uh, Johnny Hendricks To kind of get Drummed out of the UFC And and cross the aisle To Bellator It seemed like I don't know that He would necessarily Find a different role there Than the one he has In the UFC
0: And it might be The worst case scenario For you if you're Bellator And he does come over And start winning fights Because the way He exited the UFC It's not the same As the way somebody Like Mm -hmm. your boy Sweet and sassy Went out
1: Next question this week comes to us from Chris Smalling, who writes, so Steven the Wonder Man Thompson defeated Game Bread, but where to now? Game Bread. Surely he's too young, talented, and handsome to merely be a gatekeeper, but can't see the UFC giving him a title shot anytime soon, especially as long as T. Wood is champ. Uh, discuss, please. So, yeah, Ben, uh, vintage Steven the Wonder Man Thompson out there against Jorge Masvidal this past week at UFC 217. Uh, the return of the Wonder Man that I think, you know, the kind of fighter that that – uh made him seem like an up and coming guy before those Tyron Woodley fights and before uh the second Tyron Woodley fight kind of took the air out of a lot of a lot of uh what we thought we were going to get from Stephen Thompson this more of a a quintessential wonder man style performance where he's able to to get the karate going he's able to bust out the karate really makes Masvidal look uncomfortable out there uh and beats Jorge Masvidal you know, ended up beating him by decision, but in a in a in a way that we're not accustomed to seeing Jorge Masvidal get beat. Just kind of made Masvidal look uncomfortable and uh, not really. I don't want to say not competitive because clearly it was a competitive fight, but like Masvidal was never really in this thing from a uh, from a competition standpoint. So, and a, a, a a tremendous win I would say for Steven Thompson. But again, it does raise the question: Where does this guy go? Since, assumedly, you're not putting him in the cage with Tyron Woodley again.
0: No, as long as Tyron Woodley's the champ, there is no market out there for that fight. And I, I kind of hate to say that because you would like to believe, you know, hey, if you beat all the other contenders, they got to give you a shot. But man, after what we saw, there's nobody who really is lining up to see that again. So I guess if you're the Wonder Man right now, you're sitting around hoping that somebody beats Tyron Woodley. And if not that, then I would start looking outside the division or start looking at just kind of interesting matchups you can pick for yourself. The problem is that Wonder Man doesn't exactly have the the verbal skills to go out there and pick himself a fight, and I don't think there's a whole lot of people that necessarily want to pick a fight with him at this point. He's obviously a tough opponent. He can make you look bad even if you manage to beat him sometimes, uh, and he forces people into this game where if you stand there at that right distance, then he'll just kick you to pieces and he forces you to get kind of reckless and charge in and try to make it into like a more of a boxing fight, more of a brawl, which is the only moments when Jorge Masvidal really looked like he had a chance was when he could get uh, Stephen Thompson to plant his feet and throw back with him. But in order to do that, you usually have to take some punishment on the way in. Uh, it's just not a matchup that I think a whole lot of people really want right now, and there's a lot of more interesting stuff going on at welterweight. You don't have to pick a tough fight like that in order to get into a fight that you know, people might want to see.
1: Yeah, and he's in kind of a weird spot because you say like look outside the division, uh, try to get some other stuff going on, but you know Stephen Thompson is a svelte six foot, 170 pounds. It's hard for me to believe that he could either make the jump to middleweight. Seems like a lo- an awful long way up. 185 for steven thompson and yet it doesn't necessarily seem like he could get down to 155 no he's kind of in this weird spot where i don't know that he necessarily has the physicality for the weight class above him and and yet i think he might be too big for the weight class below him so uh yeah
0: you do realize though that we're talking about a guy who owns a win over robert whitaker
1: that's true that's true like uh Maybe he does go back up. I don't know. Or maybe he does go up to 185. That It just seems like a a, a tough spot for Stephen Thompson to be in because those, those pounds in either direction are not something to sneeze at.
0: No, and I guess it depends who also you look at fighting. But if you tell me Stephen Thompson goes up there and fights other guys who have tried to make it at welterweight before, like Kelvin Gastelum or something, sure, I don't know. I like his chances.
1: Next question this week comes to us from Ivan Burden, who writes, So UFC 217, with everything that went on, it's easy to forget OSP. OSP kicks Anderson into Bolivian. He's on a three-fight win streak with three straight finishes. What's next for OSP? Does he wait for 205 to clear the log jam that is no time and Gus, or does he maybe move to heavyweight, pull off two good wins, and maybe get a title shot? Discourse, please.
0: I think it, we need to note uh, for one thing that it does say, kicks anderson into bolivian and bolivian is capitalized
1: yes yeah that's it's a, not just that's a style choice yeah that uh you, Ivan Burden made. you
0: thought maybe chad mispronounced Which, oblivion well isn't that a didn't.
1: uh a tyson reference didn't tyson at one point say something like that
0: i think so <laughs> well, that's pretty awesome during like the dark
1: the dark days i
0: find that absolutely not at all difficult to believe
1: uh, it is easy to forget Oven St. Prue here, Ben, on this card down on the Fox Sports 1 preliminary card. He scores the third round knockout over Corey uh, Anderson by uh, highlight reel head kick. I was trying to think of a different word. Uh, thunderous? Thunderous head kick?
0: Yeah. Put him into the, into the dark lands. <laughs> yes, that's right. Before and, he even hit the mat.
1: And puts Corey Anderson now in a tough situation. Remember when Corey Anderson was a guy that you'd look at and be like, uh, we'll see how far he can go. If he can get it together, he seems like he could be a player in that division. But now, 28 years old, 1-3 in his last four fights, the only win, uh, second-round TKO over Sean O'Connell, and now back-to-back KO losses to Jimmy Manoa and Ovin St. Prue. So, I don't know how much longer we can reasonably expect to continue beasting.
0: Well, and it doesn't help you when the way that you choose to beast when things are going well for you, is just a suffocating wrestling grind. It's not like the UFC is going, we don't care if that guy wins or lose, he really brings it in the way the fans appreciate. No, if you're going to have that style, you better win. And uh, yeah, he... the knockouts starting to pile up on you doesn't really help. And he actually kind of got saved a little bit by uh, Dan Miragliotta in this fight. You know, in the early in the second round, I believe it was, he got his mouthpiece kicked out of his mouth and was hurt and was kind of on the run a little bit with uh, OSP coming after him. And a little, this is a little bit of Dundasso, I believe, uh, managing to turn to Dan Miragliotta during this kind of critical moment and being like, oh hey, by the way, my mouthpiece is out. And baits Big Dan into stopping the fight when it was not really a natural pause at all to replace the mouthpiece mouthpiece you know only bought him four or five seconds but it might have been an important four or five seconds um but then he just gets hit with the same kick again and gets knocked out uh but as for like what do you do uh if you're osp right now i mean i think it feels like we've seen his ceiling at light heavyweight which is a really tough division when you get into that elite top three or four right uh if unless you're going to tell yourself Hey, maybe John Jones goes away for 4 years and that opens things up. I don't know if I like OSP's chances against Daniel Cormier either. Might we be we might be worth considering going to heavyweight where, you know, if you can pack on the pounds and pick the right opponents,
1: I don't know, maybe an athletic light heavyweight can uh, make some hay. Yeah, it would honestly be kind of an interesting choice to see OSP go up to heavyweight. Like you said, if he sticks around light heavyweight, it seems like at least the immediate future is pretty well scripted especially since the latest uh you know speculation about john jones is probably that he would not necessarily get the book thrown at him this time around it doesn't seem like john jones is going to be gone for good uh, no. the way things have been trending and you know daniel cormier is just sticking around uh hoping to get that third shot at john jones so you know even in in the uh, event that he beats Uh, Volkan Uzdemir beats Alexander Gustafsson again Uh, if you're OSP I think the writing is kind of on the wall as to what the UFC would want to do next if it could get John Jones back Uh, so I think it would be a super interesting idea for him to go up to heavyweight I don't know that he would necessarily like become the next Francis Ngannou up there that he would like uh, immediately become a a title challenger but it would be interesting to see what he could do you know uh, at that division where it seems like uh, there's a lot of kind of nameless fodder, and then you've got the three, four, five guys who continually sort of circle the title. I don't know where OSP would ultimately, uh, shake out. Yeah.
0: Now that you mention it, though, one thing you definitely don't want to do is f- fight Francis Engano. No, well, nobody does. Stay nobody, far nobody away nobody from Francis Ngannou.
1: Uh, last question this week comes to us from Gregor Flintstock. Oh, Yes. That seems like one we might want to Google, but I'm, I'm not sure. Well, we already
0: took a, a question about uh, Wonder Man from uh, Manchester United midfielder
1: uh, Chris Smalling. Okay. So. Going to try to do an end around here on the huge number of UFC 217 questions you no doubt received, writes Gregor Flintstock, to which I say, Gregor, you clever bastard. My question is this. Will the high of this weekend's show carry over to next Saturday's Fight Night card, where Dusty Poyer fights former CME guy, in all caps and quotation marks, uh, Pretty Tony Pettis? Or will the potential sadness of Matt Brown and Diego Sanchez send us crumbling black back into despair?
0: You know, if Gregor Flintstock is not a late 19th century pickpocket, uh, he should be. He should really consider that as a career vocation.
1: Well, I guess this is as good an introduction as we are going to get, Ben, for any discussion that we want to have about UFC Fight Night 120. Uh, Dustin Poirier versus Anthony Pettis in the main event, and then, of course, uh, welterweight contest, Matt Brown against Diego Sanchez. Uh, let's start with Matt Brown versus Diego Sanchez, because maybe that's the the, the one that's going to prompt the most discussion here. Uh, this is Matt Brown's last fight, right? That's what he says. That's what he says, and Diego Sanchez has been... Uh, at he's going to fight forever. At least from the outside looking in, living on borrowed time. But it's, it seems to think that he's going to fight forever. Uh, this one has slobberknocker written all over it. But at the same time, are you afraid in the same way Gregor Flintstock is afraid that this one is going to make you feel depressed one way or another?
0: Yes, because I think Matt Brown demolishes Diego Sanchez. I mean, prepared to be wrong about that. The the odds on it are heavily in Matt Brown's favor. I believe he's like a minus 350 uh, favorite in this one. I You know, it feels like Diego Sanchez is going to do the thing where he is just tough as nails and willing to mad dog his way through anything if he has to. But Matt Brown is going to be the bigger guy, a technical striker, a guy, but also like a guy who can really hurt you and has that mean streak that he won't mind hurting you. I don't really see Diego Sanchez getting him down and keeping him down that easily, uh, especially with the the weight it feels to me like what's going to happen is Matt Brown's going to go out there and absolutely wreck him probably in the first round. And then we're all going to be like, what the hell else did anyone expect? What were we doing this for?
1: And in the main event, Anthony Pettis returns to lightweight after a two fight foray into the featherweight division during the second half of last year. Uh, I guess he already returned against Jim Miller at two thirteen, and now sticking around lightweight for this Dustin Poirier fight. Uh, Anthony Pettis, one of those dudes, uh, who, you know, seemed like he was going to be the future of this division for a while, spent some time with the title, and since then has really hit a rocky road. Uh, he'll be trying to get his second straight win here against Dustin Poirier, but it kind of feels like a a long road back uh, for Anthony Pettis, if indeed he is able to, to get back into title contention.
0: Yeah, well, and both these guys seem to have gone through a similar thing, where they were both uh, featherweights at different points, and then decided, like, okay, you know, maybe you're better off at lightweight, maybe just the cut was taking more than it was giving you, and they but they both seem like they have a similar appeal for the u f c at this point, which is that you know kind of a known name, action fighters gonna put on a good show, you throw them in there together and see who has more of a future it seems like is is that the play here?
1: yeah, and like it's two guys who are probably going to give you a good fight, right, and that's kind of what you need in a Fox Sports One main event uh from norfolk virginia you, just, you i don't think you were tricking anyone into thinking that this is necessarily like a vital uh fight that's going to script out the future of the 155 pound title picture or anything like that but dustin poyer and anthony pettis are probably going to go out there and do the damn thing yeah right? it's going to be a good fight
0: and that's you know as as good a promise as i guess i hope for in there for some of these fight cards i also though wonder you know and that some people are going to ask like You just, you came off a huge pay per view. You you know, you got a whole bunch of viewers, you got a lot of energy, and then you go right into an event like this. Do you lose any of that momentum? Do you, do you, you know, you, we saw some ads and stuff for this, uh, during UFC 217. Do you convince, people who maybe have drifted away and came back for this special event to stay with you a little again are they looking at this and going okay so now you're going back to more of the same.
1: Well that's one of the interesting aspects of this right because UFC 217 was the first event in a long time that I think you come out of being like I'd like to watch more of this. Like <laughs> wow that's that, this is uh you know this is something that I'd definitely like to spend more time watching. So, tell me about this ultimate fighting. Yeah, so you get that I think you're going to get that sort of uh suspended interest you're going to be able to roll into this fight night event on a high note people may well carry over from UFC 217 and and it probably just depends largely on how the fights go right like if Dustin Poirier and Anthony Pettis really do uh give you a, a fight of the month or fight of the year caliber brawl and you get the same thing from Matt Brown and Diego Sanchez like maybe that's enough to sustain it and keep it going uh and if you get a six-hour slog into the middle of the night, like these UFC Fight Night cards on Fox Sports One can be sometimes. Then I think uh, you do have a situation where you will have a, a you know kind of the roller coaster UFC schedule, being uh, the highest highs followed by oh yeah, a, well, a low, kind of a low. But well,
0: that's probably kind of the problem with the setup. Right, is that even if you do see some exciting fights, even that the top two fights, especially, do deliver. Uh, it's not going to be till late at night because you do have a six-fight main card on Fox Sports One. You know how they do those; they're going to really stretch it out. So, yeah, you you got to be willing to stay up late for this one.
1: You've Got to get all those ads for the general and farmers only in there. Yeah, got to make sure the general gets his gets his bang for his buck. Anyway, that's going to do it for uh, listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern that you would like to air to the Co-Main Event podcast in future weeks, so you know how to do it. Just go to the website, co maineventcom and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we are not recording this podcast stuff always happens news always breaks uh it's short it's informative we would love to tell you it's funny and if you don't like it it's really easy to unsubscribe as for right now though we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one Round one of the co-main event podcast is brought to you by Freshly, the meal delivery service that ships prepared fresh meals straight to your door. Freshly does all the prep, leaving you no shopping, no chopping, no cleanup. Please tell me that all the little co-maniacs out there aren't still doing things the old-fashioned way, laboring over a hot stove every single night just trying to get food on the table. We don't want you guys to look like a bunch of jerks. Freshly.com is too easy not to give it a try. Right, Ben?
0: That's right, Chad. All you have to do is go to Freshly.com, sign up for one of their four different meal plans, choose your meals for the week from the rotating menu, and Freshly sends them directly to you in a refrigerated box. Then all you have to do is just heat and eat. Each fresh meal is ready to go in about three minutes, so they're perfect for people who don't have a lot of time to spend messing around in the kitchen. All the meals are fully prepared. Before you get them, you just have to heat them up. Freshly is an easy and convenient option for eating healthier every day, and it tastes great. A fridge full of fresh meals for the week, hard to argue with that.
1: Every meal Freshly prepares is 100% all natural with no artificial flavors or preservatives, no refined sugars and no gluten. On top of that, right now, Freshly is offering some real savings exclusively for co Event podcast listeners. Just go to the website, Freshly.com, and use the promo code MAINEVENT. That's main event, all one word, no spaces, no capitals, to not only get 20% or $20 off your first order, but $20 off your second order too. That's $40 in savings just for you, exclusively for being a friend of the podcast. Just go to Freshly.com and get started today. So Ben, much like the rest of UFC 217, I felt like we got a pretty uplifting performance from George St. Pierre in this middleweight title fight against Michael Bisping. Clearly he had some issues along the way, but ultimately uh, emerges as the 185 pound champion uh, with as this thing turned out, I would argue definite shades of, of Randy Couture versus Tim Sylvia and BJ Penn versus Matt Hughes. And GSP becomes, I believe, the fourth person to move up in weight uh, and win the title in a separate weight class in the UFC along with Couture, Penn, and uh, Conor McGregor. So just coming out of it, man, were you were you shocked? Were you surprised what we saw out of George St. Pierre? And did you come away as I did feeling like, maybe one of the things that this product has been missing over the last couple of years, frankly, was just GSP. I was surprised. I was surprised at how good he looked coming back
0: after four years away. I think that was one of my big questions, was the kind of rust that you were going to see on George St. Pierre because just historically, everybody says they don't think ring rust is going to be an issue, and then for basically everybody, it usually is an issue, at least to some extent. And he came out there in the first round, and I thought, damn, George St. Pierre looks good, just looked fluid and relaxed and like he had a lot of stuff to threaten Michael Bispin with like he wasn't just dependent on getting a takedown and work on that old GSP ground and pound game and i got to say by the end of that first round i thought i was probably wrong about GSP i was probably wrong about what he would come back to the table with after 4 years off
1: yeah and i you know last week during the show during which we previewed this event and i think throughout the mixed martial arts world we thought this is going to have to be a takedown heavy game plan for George St. Pierre. He's really going to have to dominate this thing with position on the ground, maybe get a submission early because if it stays on the feet, uh, the conventional wisdom just said Michael Bisping was going to pick him apart. And, you know, he did get a couple of takedowns in this, in this fight, uh, did do some vintage George St. Pierre stuff from the top, but like
0: also got cut open. Yes, he did, while he He was on got top
1: slashed on from the bottom by Bisping when, when the fight did go to the ground. But for the most part, you had a stand-up affair here. And aside from just going up in weight and being competitive and winning the title at 185, I was really surprised by how effective St. Pierre was able to be on his feet. And like I said, during the introduction period of this this show, it kind of reminded me that, oh yeah, George St. Pierre uh, was a decorated striker in his youth and like came from a karate base. And the fact that he transformed himself into one of the better offensive wrestlers in mixed martial arts history is in and of itself a complete anomaly so maybe this was sort of a uh, a return to basics for him in a lot of ways going back to the to the skills that that originally brought him to the table and i was wondering if uh you know if it was kind of by necessity that he figured he wouldn't be able to uh, consistently take Bisping down over 25 minutes and therefore decided, well, I'm just going to have to go out there and and beat him on the feet or whether or not, you know, as we saw in a couple of different ways that this signaled a, a shift to kind of a, a different George St. Pierre than we had seen during the latter stages of his run with the welterweight title.
0: Yeah. Well, I also felt like as I was watching this fight, you know, he goes out there and has a really good first round and then Bisping seems to start to find his rhythm a little more in the second round. And by the third, you kind of got the sense that maybe George St. Pierre was slowing down a little bit. You saw a little less volume from it. And it seemed like maybe that was one of the things Bisping was pinning his hopes on, you know, it wouldn't be the first fight that he won on just endurance and durability. Like with just willingness to absorb damage and set a high pace and wear people down. It seemed like maybe that he had the chance to do that, especially when he split George St. Pierre open and you saw the blood all over his face and he started thinking like, all right, well, this is the third round. Let's see if he can do two more rounds of this. Uh, and then he caught Bisping. And it seemed like, at least from his description of it afterwards, that, that catching him with that left hook was basically the result of uh, diligent film study. That they had figured out that Bisping did not handle shots coming from that side very well. Which, would that surprise you, right. given his eye issues on that say, side?
1: That's like, it's kind of like, if that is the, the product of diligent film study, it's also almost comical, right? To be like, well, you got a guy who's almost blind in one eye. Maybe throw the hook on that side.
0: <laughs> right, well, get him thinking, get him moving in that direction, get him thinking about something coming from the other side, uh, and then nail him. And then, of course, uh, you know, kind of classic MMA submissions game, as soon as it hits the ground when you know you got the guy hurt, throws just one punch to get him to move his arm a little bit and then snatch on that choke. And you knew when he had the choke, it was in there, and you knew right away he's got it. And you also knew Bisping is not going to tap to that.
1: Yeah, and to his credit, it sounded like at the post-fight press conference, Bisping, uh, in what I think is classic Bisping style, I feel like he kind of handled this and this loss like a champ, and we can talk about that a little bit more in a few minutes, but he sort of was like, yeah, I might have tapped, but it was just too tight, and I went to sleep too fast, which is, uh, an awesome thing for Michael Bisping to admit. What do we make of George St. Pierre getting a little tired here? Kind of doing some huffing and puffing towards the end of the first round, and then the second round where Bisping likely had his best moments, uh, George St. Pierre maybe trying to regroup a little bit, trying to, uh, conserve his energy. Clearly at 170 pounds, he was kind of a cardio machine, uh, and could work that style of takedowns and, and dictating the pace for days and days, uh, He comes back after four years away, obviously, which might have something to do with an adrenaline dump or kind of a a cardio still needing to get together a little bit. Do we think that this was like a one time octagon jitters kind of a thing for George St. Pierre or as Joe Rogan used to remind us almost any time anyone would go out there with big muscles like that sort of physique takes a lot of blood and oxygen to make it go. Uh, is George St. Pierre at 185 pounds, a little bit more susceptible to getting tired?
0: Well, I don't know if we want to go too far in that direction because it's not like he gassed out and lost. Like he, all he did was look a little bit slower, start throwing a little bit less in terms of volume, but still uh, nailed Michael Bisping with a solid left hook, put him down and finished the fight. So I don't know if we can really fault his cardio too much. If he still had enough juice to do that. I will be interested, though, to see what comes next there because noncommittal is the best way to describe his remarks uh, in the cage after the fight as far as what's he going to do. You know, when asked about being a middleweight and suddenly George St. Pierre really wanted to remind us that he had been a small welterweight to begin with, that he wasn't particularly big for that division. This one was about the challenge. And so you're thinking... That does not sound to me like a guy who is ready to plant his flag at middleweight and take on all comers.
1: No, not really. But were you surprised at the the lack of size disparity in this fight? I thought Michael Bisping was going to be much larger than George St. Pierre, just given that, you know, Bisping was formerly a light heavyweight and, and moved down to middleweight, started his UFC career after winning the ultimate fighter at two hundred and five pounds. Uh and George Saint Pierre, you know, back in the day when they used to talk about George Saint Pierre moving up to 185, uh Farraz Zahabi, at least at one point, was like, I would rather have him go down to 155 because he's not a big welterweight. And it'd be easier for him to go down to lightweight than it would be for him to pack on the the extra size to go to middleweight. And so I kind of thought One of the the big things that Bisping will have going for him in this fight would be a size advantage. Uh, And when you saw them together, you're like, yeah, Bisping had a little bit of height on him. I think George St. Pierre actually had a slightly longer reach. But like, they didn't look like guys from opposite weight classes, I thought. I thought they looked very much... Uh, you know, well, well matched in the cage and just in terms of physicality. Yeah. I mean, he didn't
0: tower over him or anything, but also like this being as a 38 year old middleweight and who seemed like maybe he's showing the signs of that a little bit. George St. Pierre, he looked, you know, a little bit bigger. He looked not quite as shredded as we're used to him looking. But I also think, imagine if you put him in there with somebody like Luke Rockhold, then I think you start to see a real size disparity that will remind you he's not much of a middleweight
1: if anybody pulled the short straw out of this thing, it's Luke Rockhold,
0: right? <laughs> yes.
1: Like the George St. Pierre becoming a uh, middleweight champion, not only sort of spoils Luke Rockhold's get back fight against Michael Bisping, but like, uh, it's, if you're Luke Rockhold, you can, you can really easily imagine something, someone coming up to you in the front row and whispering, would you mind moving back a few rows? <laughs> because he's, he's not going to be number one on the to do list now. For for anybody.
0: Well, okay, let's talk about the to-do list for a second, then we can move on to talk about Michael Bisping. Uh, because your boy Robert Whittaker is at this one, sitting there uh, saying, I think he said he picked Bisping, but he was kind of waiting, waiting to see who would come out of it. GSP does not sound afterwards like a man who is dying to take on the next challenger at middleweight. It sounded like he was just trying to prepare us for that inevitability in his post-fight remarks that maybe he was not going to stick around to defend the middleweight title. Uh, What do you think happens here? Because I did not come away with that. You know, Dana White says GSP Whitaker is next, but Dana White be just saying stuff from time to time, as I think you know. Do you feel like you have any sort of idea now what's going to happen next with the middleweight title, or is it just we're going to look and see what makes the most money?
1: It's really hard to say, man. Uh, and I just want to say as an aside, good that we saw Robert Whitaker indicate that he has accepted the Bobby Knuckles nickname. What? Heading into this. So a big weekend for everyone, yeah. including the co-main event podcast. Uh, exactly what George St. Pierre will do. I, I can't say. Like I, throughout this entire, uh, lead up to the fight, we sort of said it's really hard to imagine George St. Pierre, like, Winning the middleweight title and then immediately becoming a fighting champion, right? And wading into the pack of contenders at 185 pounds because, okay, you go out there and be Michael Bisping. That's one thing. I feel like it's another thing entirely to start taking on the Robert Whittaker's, Yoel Romero's, Luke Rockhold's, and Jacare Souza's of the world. Like, there's some killers. That's a list of killers. Yeah. Everyone on that list. Uh, and And so – it's. I don't know what to expect from George St. Pierre. Obviously, Robert Whitaker really wants to fight in Australia. He wants to fight on that Perth card, I believe, coming up. Uh, and if you're George St. Pierre and you came back, and I believe you have a four-fight contract now, is it? Do you would do you really want to risk that? You seem to have cemented your legacy, kind of as the greatest of all time by winning this second title in the middleweight division.
0: Also, probably made a bunch of money if you related past million pay per Also, buys. made a
1: bunch of money. I don't do, like it's very much going to depend, I think, on George St. Pierre's goals and what he wants to do with this comeback because you know, when he was the welterweight champ, he waded through every contender they could throw at him again and again and again. Uh, and, and felt like
0: that took a psychological yeah, toll that he did not to, appreciate. Seemed
1: to really put him kind of on the razor's edge at all times. So, do we expect him to fight Robert Whitaker when he still has? Uh, you know, the, the, the specter of Anderson Silva or Conor McGregor or even Tyron Woodley out there, uh, as, as a next fight to take. I, I honestly at this point have no idea.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think that it's kind of laughable at this point to act like anybody could tell GSP what to do. I mean, he, even if you put it in his contract that he's got to defend the title next. You can't make the guy fight. If he decides he just wants to retire again, he can do that. And honestly, I wouldn't blame him. If he said, you know what, I wanted this one-time challenge, I came out there, I proved everything I need to prove to myself, I'm going back home again, fine, man. I, I mean, I would not blame the guy for that.
1: I wouldn't blame him either, although not necessarily as a counterpoint, just as a uh, an observation. It looked to me like he really enjoyed this. Like it seemed, you know, he walked away at the end of 2013 claiming, psychological distress and, and that he was, had kind of been put through the ringer by the rigors of being the UFC welterweight champion for as long as he was and being as good for such a sustained period as he was. Uh, he, it seemed to me like this time off really did sort of recharge him and refresh him. And he seemed to really be having a lot of fun uh with the entire spectacle of UFC 217 you know the the pre-fight events and then the fight itself and then the aftermath of it where obviously it's it's easy to be super stoked when you win uh but it just seemed like he really liked this like he really enjoyed this process and that is one of the things that makes me wonder what will George St. Pierre do it didn't it doesn't seem like he was just going to do this and then you know go back to Canada and and, and uh segue back into being the captain america winter soldier or whatever it was that he was in it seemed he's like
0: soaking in that hop toe what was he doing
1: yeah it seemed like uh he if i had to guess i would say he's got a taste for this again yeah is kind of how it seemed and uh that makes me wonder like what we will see from him in general moving forward cuz like i said you see him in the cage against michael Bisping fighting this style that was different from uh what we had grown accustomed to seeing from him during the late stages of his welterweight title run. He seemed to be having a great time. Uh, he was very effective in, in how he did it. It does make me wonder, are we going to see sort of like a GSP 2.0 here who is uh, having more fun and, and letting it all hang out a little bit more than the like ultra-conservative takedown machine that, that ruled that 170-pound division for so long? Yeah. Should we talk a little bit before we end about Michael Bispin? Yeah, man. Let's talk about Michael Bisping.
0: Because he says he's not retiring. And, you know, also does the familiar song and dance of, well, I can't go out like that. I don't want my last moment in the octagon to be me getting choked out. Which, on one hand, understandable. On the other hand, you know this is historically a very popular uh, sentiment for fighters to express at this point in their careers. I mean, obviously he's going to be disappointed in everything. He lost the title. And it seems like where he's at right now and the 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 time in his career that he's at, not going to get back to that title in all likelihood. So you've kind of seen the peak of your career. If you want to hang around and, and what, get one more win, fight uh, back home in London, you know, go out on a more positive note. I mean, I guess I understand it. I also feel like there is a lot of danger afoot. If you're Michael Bisping and you want to fight one more time in the middleweight division. Because think about how far down they'd have to reach to find somebody where you feel like, okay, that's a gimme for Michael Bisping.
1: Yeah, that's the thing. Like, who who would it be, right? Because we already did the Dan Henderson thing, right. which was the obvious Michael Bisping uh, rematch as champion. And now Dan Henderson has walked away. Uh, and like I said, you start looking at that middleweight division and it is mostly murderers. Well,
0: and if you start it's thinking murderers about...
1: murderers and Michael Bisping. <laughs> if you
0: start thinking about... Uh, the guys who make sense in terms of like a narrative, a fight that you could sell if you're the UFC, the two guys who jump out at you right away are Luke Rockhold for a rubber match and UL Romero uh, that, that kind of like bring that, that that rivalry that never really was consummated. Right. Uh, Both those guys are terrifying.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you say those guys make sense. Those guys make sense for the UFC. Like those dudes don't make sense for Michael Bisping. I thought you were going to say Vitor Belfort or Lyoto Machida. Because if you are Michael Bisping, and you're looking for, let's just say, someone around your own age, and (laughs) maybe someone who's not necessarily going to Yoel Romero you out there. Yoel Romero's around his age, man. Yoel Romero's older than he is. On on paper. In in the real world, Yoel Romero comes in here and kills every 18-year-old walking the the God's green earth, right? (laughs) Like, Vitor Belfort, I think you could make a pretty obvious case. Like, those dudes fought during the TRT era... And it did not go well for Bisping. Sets up an obvious narrative with Vitor Belfort, if you can get him. And Machida, you know, we just saw him return uh, and and lose that fight against Derek Brunson. Maybe if you're Bisping, you think you can be successful against Leota Machida. Although, uh, as an aside, stylistically, it seems like what Bisping does also plays into what Machida does uh, pretty snugly. Uh, Last question I would have on
0: this is, does this make you view Bisping's title reign... Differently, because now you look at it, he beats Luke Rockhold in a fight where nobody really expects him to win. Kind of shocks the world there. Defends it once against Dan Henderson, who was nowhere near t- top title contention position and was super damn old at the time. Uh, and even then, kind of skates by with the decision after nearly getting knocked out. Then takes on you know the greatest welterweight of all time, who moves up to middleweight and chokes him out, puts him to sleep. It's not much of a title reign. When you think of it, does it it change the narrative that Michael Bisping was secretly way better than people gave him credit for? What does it do?
1: I don't think it changes that narrative. I think I wrote a story about this on Bleacher Report last week. I think history will look kindly on Michael Bisping once it's all said and done. I think the truth is we all kind of knew what was going on with the Michael Bisping title reign. It's not like he won the title and immediately started ticking top contenders off the list. He won the title and and kind of picked and choosed who he fought, went for the money, had that Dan Henderson fight, signed up to fight GSP, uh, you would guess, mostly for the paycheck. He also probably thought he would win this fight. And yeah, he lost, but he handled it well, like I said earlier. And I really think that the last few years have really only been good for Michael Bisping. I feel like the performances that he's had... In the twilight of his career, uh, have really established him as an all-time UFC great, maybe like top 20, uh, all-time UFC fighter. And I don't know that you can take that away from the guy just because he lost from, to George St. Pierre. I think the message here is, is a great return for GSP, not necessarily like a huge letdown for Michael Bisping. I think history ultimately judges Bisping as a guy who did far more, uh, with, the fighting style and athletic talents that he came into the UFC with than maybe we would have expected. And a guy who ultimately was far, far more successful than we expected. I think he's what he's 20 and eight or something like that in the UFC, which is pretty goddamn good really at the end of the day. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, that's uh want to do, are you fucking kidding me? Are we doing that? Yeah, let's you okay. fucking kidding me? This, this long ass round has me all discombobulated.
0: See, this is what I'm talking about. The pride round where by minute, like eight, Minute nine, you start thinking, why did anyone think this was a good idea?
1: All right, well, uh, I'll do my are you fucking kidding me, Ben, because it's George St. Pierre, Michael Bisping related, and that is Michael Bisping's damn cup fell out of his shorts, Uh Ben, in the middle of this fight. Yep. Are you fucking kidding me? How does that even happen? Did George St. Pierre do that with his mind? We can't rule that out. We can't be sure. And the other thing that I noticed about this was after we, like, the cup comes out, and then we have a one-minute break between rounds, which is like you are not rebuilding Michael Bisping's cup in a minute. So basically he has to take the the protective cup part of the athletic supporter and stick it in his underpants. And just as they're going out to fight round two, the referee looks at Bisping and goes, Are you good? And Bisping (laughs) makes this classic Bisping face, which you can only make if you have 30 fucking fights in the UFC, where he makes this face that is like, no, I'm not good. I've got my fucking jock (laughs) cups stuffed in my underpants. But what can you do? We're going to have a fight. And that's just how it's going to be. So are you fucking kidding? Are you kidding me? Jed, Meyer, are you fucking
0: kidding me? I'm gonna read you a quote here. This is a quote from Dana White. I believe this was a day before UFC 217. You know, he had claimed at the press conference that, uh, 2017 was the best year ever by far for the UFC. Wow! Uh huh. And then, so, you know, naturally, in further conversations with reporters, he got pressed on that a little bit. Here's a quote from him. It drives me crazy when I see these guys write these stories about the business. You know what you know about the business? What I tell you. That's what you know. And later, there's nothing factual about anything that's ever written about this business. Huh. Are you fucking kidding me? Dana White just declared himself the sole owner of the truth of all facts when it comes to the mixed martial arts business, Chad.
1: You fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me?
0: Also, I feel like I get a little more of a picture of why Dana White thought Donald Trump would be a good guy to support in the the presidential election when I hear him talk like this.
1: We are in trouble if Dana White is the single arbiter of the truth. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two.
0: Chad, get out the anti-venom, because Cody Garbrandt just got bit by a snake in the grass, my man. TJ Dillashaw goes out there against his old nemesis and former teammate from Team Alpha Male, gets dropped in the first round, gets up, does a little bit of stanky leg on his way back to the corner, then comes out in round two and just wins the damn thing. Drops Cody Garbrandt, then pours on the punishment, and once again, TJ Dillashaw is your UFC men's bantamweight champion. How you like that?
1: Wait, what did you say? He got bit by a snake in Snake the...
0: in the grass.
1: I feel like I should have brought my trombone for that. Snake in what? the grass
0: delivers a terrible bite. A lot of people don't know
1: that. I mean, going into this fight, Ben, it looked like potentially the best bout on paper of a star-studded and stacked UFC 217 card. And I think on any normal night of fights... It probably would have been because you came in here with an honest to goodness grudge match between two guys who legitimately uh, don't like each other. You had uh, the whole rivalry kind of spurred on by some last minute trash talk, uh, both where Cody Garbrandt may have unwittingly revealed that his fight camp has a steroid problem and where he released that Bigfoot style uh, (laughs) video of a man who resembled Cody Garbrandt knocking down another man who may or may not have been. T.J. Dillashaw. Yeah, you, could, you could clearly see him knock him right down there on the grassy knoll. During during, a, during a, an old sparring session. So, like, you had everything you could possibly want uh, to get you hyped for a men's 135-pound championship fight. And these two guys definitely delivered, I think, everything that we thought it would be uh, heading into this fight. And to have Dillashaw emerge victorious, I think you're right, is is pretty cool for him because... I don't know that I really reflected on it until after he won this fight, but he had really felt like an afterthought in this division for the last couple of years. You know, the the big storylines here were the return of Dominic Cruz surrounding Cruz's uh, split decision win to take the title off Dillashaw. And then immediately after that, the the second biggest storyline at men's bantamweight was the rise of Cody Garbrandt. So despite the fact that like he had been pretty good, uh, since the the loss of that title like we hadn't really thought about TJ Dillashaw very much and so to have him come out and win this fight i think like paints the last year or two of his career in kind of a different light or sheds more light on it because you look back and you think oh he lost that split decision to to Dominic Cruz which he can cont- you know he insists and i think maybe rightly so, could have gone either way. I think coming out of it, we thought they probably got it right, that Dominic Cruz probably won, but it was a very close fight. You're never going to convince TJ of that. Right, and other than that, he's beat everybody. So, like, to have him go out there and win the title back uh, over Cody Garbrandt seems like a big moment.
0: And for him to finish Cody Garbrandt, too, you know, really put an exclamation point on that one, and also, I think, really helped the division in general, which you know with the lighter divisions always comes that criticism that they don't finish each other that it's always going to be a decision for them to go out there and take turns dropping each other and for TJ to finally end it in the second round you know it does make the uh, men's bantamweight division seem like a more exciting place there were some real fireworks in that fight uh and just the the storyline was so natural and organic there with the the team stuff back and forth um that yeah it, it did feel like a Rare, really, really important fight for that division. I wonder, though, now, because afterwards, when TJ Dillashaw gets on the mic and immediately sets his sights on Demetrius Johnson, I have two thoughts. And they are in order. One, that would be awesome. I'm totally down for that. Let's make that happen. Two, wait a minute. Can you really get down there, or are we just wasting our time with this? Because it does seem like okay, the men's bantamweight division having a bit of a moment right now. There's exciting stuff going on. There's some fun fights that you could make. And the first thing that the champion wants to do is go down to flyweight, which he's never successfully done before. I don't know. It seems, it seems like a great idea if it all happens that way. It also seems not without some risks.
1: Yeah, and not without some unanswered questions like stuff that we would have to figure out. I think that it, it like on paper it seems like the right move right now. For TJ Dillashaw, because unless you turn around and do a Cody Garbrandt rematch immediately, it's not like there is a clear cut number one contender ready to kick the door in and fight TJ Dillashaw. You got Dominic Cruz about to fight Jimmy Rivera, uh, I think, at the next UFC. I think that's at UFC 218, but I don't have it right in front of me. And obviously the winner of that fight is kind of the natural number one contender. But it's not like that fight won't wait a little while. Um, I think you could say the same thing about a Garbrandt rematch. Like, uh, it's not like Garbrandt had had the title since 2012 and was, beating everybody and, and, uh, is the kind of champion that deserves an automatic rematch, especially when you get knocked out in a fight. I don't necessarily know, uh, how you justify an immediate rematch. So it seems to me like the best thing you could do maybe for the sub 155 pound weight classes is to have TJ Dillashaw try to fight. Flyweight champion Demetrius Johnson at some weight. But again, that does bring up some questions, right? Because if you are TJ Dillashaw and you're the bantamweight champion, do you go down to 125? Because then what if you win? And by the same token, what if you lose? Or do you just like have this at 130 pound catch weight so both guys can kind of meet in the middle and no matter what happens, uh, you can kind of move forward from there.
0: Well, then I guess if you're the UFC, you have to figure out, why, like answering the question, why are they they doing that? What is that fight for? Is it just because TJ Dillashaw is mad that Demetrius Johnson didn't want to fight him before? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's enough. It seems like when you have two champions, the cool thing about it is you get to put two different belts standing there on the fight poster. And it feels like, you know, a meaningful clash in that sense. It seems like usually the UFC would prefer to pick a weight class there and go with it.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. But then you you set up this situation. Like, what what happens next, right? Like, if you right, um, I mean,
0: that's always the question. The same thing with you know Conor McGregor going up, or anybody going up a a division. Even the question we were asking earlier about GSP going to middleweight, the what happens next? I mean, it seems like if you're you're the UFC and you see an opportunity to make a fight that a lot of people will buy, uh, featuring the bantamweight champion and the flyweight champion, who might be the best fighter in the company, but also the like least. Sought after by fans, fighter in the company. I don't think you ask too many questions about what comes next. I think you're just grateful to have that opportunity.
1: Yeah, no, I think you're probably right about that, and I think that it 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 is what they should do. I just think like if you're TJ Dillashaw, you go down to 125, and Demetrius Johnson beats you, you have a hard time going back up to 135 and and selling yourself as the the best fighter at that weight. And if you are Demetrius Johnson, like if you lose to TJ Dillashaw. Maybe that you don't suffer a huge blow to your legacy, but at the same time, does he keep that title? Does he relinquish it? And then we got to have another tournament, or Demetrius Johnson has to fight for the uh, vacant title. And if you win, you get to keep your title, which is nice. But at the same <laughs> time, like, would you go up to 135 and fight there? Or I don't know. It just like, I'm not necessarily saying that those questions are bad. I'm just saying, like, I feel like it's a fight that raises a lot of questions and possibilities.
0: Yeah. By the way, the uh, Cruz uh, Rivera fight is two nineteen. You see two nineteen, but then that, it, what do you do if you don't do T.J. Dillashaw? Yeah. You do Dillashaw has to wait around to see who wins uh, Dominic Cruz, Jimmy Rivera, or uh, you know, the, I don't think the immediate rematch with Cody Garbrandt is a great idea, especially because you know Cody Garbrandt n- never defended the title. It's not like a long reigning champion who. Uh, deserves an immediate rematch. Plus, the trash talk was just so much for so long, it feels like there's going to be some fatigue there that people are not going to be willing to get right back on that bus. Uh, And maybe I'm just speaking for myself there. But I I do think that a lot may depend on how Demetrius Johnson views that challenge because he's been a little bit obstinate when it comes to anything other than the normal, like, let's just pick the next guy in line at 125 pounds. I would like to see him embrace this one because I think he might be on the cusp of breaking into like a, a next level of f- fame or at least fan appreciation. You saw him when they showed him on the screen at UFC 217, like he got a pretty big pop. It seems like maybe people are starting to come around a little bit on Demetrius Johnson. If you could go out there and say like, yeah, sure, I'll fight the men's bantamweight champ. I'll fight TJ Dillashaw, maybe that's the moment you've been looking for. I I get excited at the thought of it. And yeah. there's not a whole lot of other possibilities for Demetrius Johnson right now that excite me.
1: Oh, I absolutely agree. And I think from a fan standpoint, it's kind of a no-brainer for what Demetrius Johnson should do. From a Demetrius Johnson point of view, uh, he has always said that he would, would gladly take on the winner of Garbrandt and Dillashaw once he, once he had that consecutive title defense record in his back pocket. But at the same time, he's also said he wants a farmer's grip of money to do it. And that's going to be the question, right, is whether or not he will either come down from that whatever $2 million demand that he had or whether the UFC will meet it. Uh, and so if there's going to be a sticking point here, I think that's what it is. Uh, what about Cody Garbrandt, Ben? He Obviously, he had been ticketed as sort of a star in the making for the UFC, an up-and-coming guy who obviously had uh, kind of clowned on Dominic Cruz during their fight, the guy who's uh, sort of unilaterally or, or universally re- recognized as the best 135 pound fighter of of all time in Dominic Cruz Garbrandt kind of runs circles around him. We thought, oh, maybe, you know, you've got this crop of young, uh, fresh faced champions in the UFC and they need to find the ones that they can promote and turn, turn into stars. And, and Garbrandt seemed like one of those people. Uh, and now he has lost the title. They're clearly, not a like a career ender. The kid's what twenty six or something like that. Uh, so we know he'll be back. T.J. Dillashaw indicated that they will see each other again in the cage. But how big of a blow is this to the uh, like the ascension of Cody Garbrandt's star? And and what what happens here with him?
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously. This is going to knock you back some, but you're right. I don't think that we're anywhere close to hearing the last of Cody Garbrandt. I don't think we've seen the last Cody Garbrandt, TJ Dillashaw fight by any means. Uh, and I don't know, maybe this was kind of a needed check on Cody Garbrandt, uh, him going out there and it seemed like, I don't want to say a disdain for TJ Dillashaw's skills, but didn't seem to really like he maybe he felt like he had bought so much of the narrative about his own power uh that he was the rare guy in in bantamweight to have that kind of power that maybe a part of him forgot that other people might have it too uh and that you can get caught the same way that you can catch other people this ought to be a pretty good reminder of that and i think though that a lot's going to depend on what you do with him next and what happens there because you go from you know being this undefeated young champion uh to suddenly losing the belt that's kind of the the character check moment i feel uh and the the next year or so of Cody Garbrandt's career going to tell us where he's headed after that i think
1: i always forget he has that tattoo of the gun that looks like he's got a gun tucked in the back of his shorts uh-huh. hard, it's hard for me to look past that i got to be honest
0: you guys tattoos all over his neck and that's what you get hung up on
1: yeah it's like when you go to a hot springs in Montana, you will invariably see a middle-aged woman with like a garter belt tattoo that looks like it's got a derringer. Yeah, shoved into it. I've seen it. that
0: one. I've been to that hot springs.
1: Like Cody Garbrandt, it's like that—the equivalent, the MMA fighter equivalent of that for me. It's just hard to—it's hard to go forward from there for me.
0: I, I understand what you're saying.
1: That's gonna do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Well, then things started out heated between Joanna Yajicic and Rose Namajunas, and it felt like the temperature just got turned up from there. And by the time they get together for the final stare down for their fight at UFC 217, uh, it was kind of terrifying, man. I got to be honest with you, with Joanna Yajicic telling Rose Namajunas essentially that she was coming to get her soul. And Rose Namajunas, as we referred to her deadpan Rose last week on the show, Standing up there on the stage, reciting the Lord's Prayer, like what we were doing was an exorcism. Somehow even scarier than threatening to take someone's soul. Standing
0: there, staring blankly at them and reciting the Lord's
1: Prayer. I absolutely agree. When you you put together that with the Lord's Prayer and Rose Namayuna sitting quietly alone in a room, playing classical music on a piano, uh, the whole thing comes out to be... Almost more terrifying than the, the antics of Joanna Jacek, which obviously had held the 150 pound, 115 pound division, uh, in her sway for the, the last couple of years. Uh, we get into the fight. Rose Nami comes in as the biggest underdog on the card and, and ultimately wins the damn thing, uh, via surprising knockout in three minutes and three seconds. Uh, I don't know where you want to go with this. What's your immediate takeaway, I guess, uh, from this fight and just the the surprising outcome?
0: Well, my immediate takeaway is, damn. And then my follow-up takeaway is, what? And then my third takeaway is, how much of this are we ready to believe is that Rose Yunus put it all together, came in there, was a better fighter, beat Ioannia and Chick, and will beat her if they fight again, and... How much of this is youna and j Chick maybe either took her too lightly or fought her in a way that was not respectful enough of her skills and she went out there and she got surprised like if I ask you what does this win mean what does this title changing hands mean does it mean to you Rose Yunus is you know the best female straw weight on the planet or does it mean to you that Yuani uh, and Jay Chick messed up and Namajunas made her pay
1: yeah, it's gonna. it makes me think it's definitely going to be interesting to see what happens next because on one hand, uh, it's a terrific and surprising win for Rose Namajunas and kind of a feel-good win for her really considering that she came off that season of The Ultimate Fighter and kind of got fast forwarded into a strawweight title fight against Carla Sparza and maybe wasn't ready for it. And then you has to to rebuild the reputation and grow and and become a better fighter and gets the second opportunity and and makes it work for her. So I think it on one hand you really got to feel great for Rose Namajunas. On the other hand, uh, I don't know that it's despite the fact that she goes out there and knocks out the very dominant champion. I don't know that it's the kind of performance that makes you think that she's the new Joanna Jedlicz. You know, I don't know that it's the kind of performance that makes you think Rose Yunus is about to go out there and rip off uh four, five, six title defenses. We just saw her lose to Karolina Kovolkievic, uh albeit by split decision, last year, so we know that, you know, she hasn't been as consistent, hasn't been as dominant uh as yet Jacik was Uh, but it, it definitely breathes new life into the division. Yeah. 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 JJ had beat almost all of the top contenders uh, and had been so dominant that, uh, we had talked about her potentially going up to the women's flyweight division in search of new challenges. And now all those people get revitalized a little bit to have Rose Namajunas as champion. Uh, and I think like whether or not this is even possible in the fight game, Rose Namajunas, uh, brings a different vibe. To the table, I guess, than than Joanna Chick. and like I said at the top of the show, uh, one of acceptance and uh, uh, inclusivity, I guess you could say, which I, I don't necessarily know how that works in the in the business of selling fights, but it's going to give us a while terrifying, kind of a different tone.
0: At well, the top, especially because when you're asking her in the cage afterwards you know, how does it feel to be the women's strawweight UFC champion? And her reply is, I feel like a normal person, man. Uh Like just trying to kind of downplay the significance of the title win, making the point that, you know, it's about whether you're a good person with or without the title. uh, And it felt like the unstated part of that is, and Ioana Jick was a bit of an asshole to me throughout this entire thing, regardless of whether she had the belt or not. And that's what matters. Um Yeah, I don't know. I Do you think that immediate rematch is the thing to do here? Because like we said, you know, we were just saying about Cody Garbrandt. He hadn't defended the title. He goes out there. He loses it right after winning it. Um Doesn't, you know, seem like he fits the profile for somebody who deserves an immediate rematch. But Ioana Jick does fit that profile. She had been a dominant champ in this division do you think that, that what she's done so far and everything about this, this, you know, the upset nature of the fight, does it tell you we need to run this one back?
1: I'm inclined to say yes, uh, just because, like you said, Joanna Chick had been so good as strawweight champion. This was going to be the title defense where she would officially, I think, tie Ronda Rousey for a number of consecutive uh, title defenses of a UFC women's title. Uh, this was her first career loss in MMA. She was fourteen and zero coming into this fight. Uh, so you you take all that and you kind of take the uh, the following that Joanna Jetic had built up as among hardcore fans as, as you know one of the more popular champions of uh, this new crop of of UFC fighters. And then you look at the notion that, like at men's bantamweight, I'm not sure that there's a clear cut number one contender. Uh, that that's champing at the bit to go out there and and challenge Rose Namajunas.
0: Well, yeah, that's true. And if you're the UFC and you're looking at a fight that you can make next that's really going to help push this division forward and get some popularity for it, I don't know if you're looking and saying like, all right, let's move right on and do Jessica Andraj or uh Karolina Kowalik or anything against Rose Namajunas. I do think that you could you could really do something with that rematch because of the way. uh the lead up to this fight, it felt like Joanna and Jay chick was kind of embracing the, you know, not like a new persona at all, but like a more dramatic version of the, the dominant champion kind of thing she'd played before where yeah. she was going out there, you know, she's getting in your face telling you, you never felt anybody like her. You never faced anybody like this. She's going to take your soul. You're not ready for this. Uh And she's just all up in your face. Like she's trying to kind of old school, Mike Tyson, mentally break you before the fight even starts. And Rose Nam-Yunis, uh creates an impenetrable wall uh, with her deadpan. Doesn't seem to get through that, even though at times you're wondering, is she totally deer in the headlights frozen here or is she completely unaffected? She goes out there and she looks pretty unaffected. I do, I feel like a lot of people are going to want to see what would that rematch look like? What would the dynamic look like? Because it can't be the same thing after that. Jo- Joanna can't go out there with the same thing where she's presenting herself as the colossus of the division that uh, is going to completely break your spirit and you're not ready for it and you can't possibly have prepared well enough because you already lost that fight once. So what does it look like if you get those two together in the cage again? Um, plus, I feel like there are... You know, because she was such a huge underdog, there are going to be people looking at this and saying, well, Rose Namajunas, I don't want to say got lucky, but uh, Yen Jacek took her too lightly. And, you know, you look at her, her fighting style, there wasn't a whole lot of fight to analyze there, but you look at some of the stuff that she was doing early on in this fight, and it did seem like she came out there looking to throw heavy early on rather than looking to, you know, do what she normally does, establish the jab. You just, instead of seeing her work... You know, speed, straight punches. It looked like she was coming right out to just throw heavy leather at Rose Namajunas and then got caught. And after she got caught the first time, never seemed to get back into it.
1: Yeah, I wasn't crazy about a lot of the J. chick stuff leading up to this fight only because uh, I had been so much of a fan of the stuff that she had done before the other fights. Like, I thought that the Joanna Champion, Joanna Yad uh gimmick, so to speak, was good and cool and good enough. And then it seemed like leading up to this Nama Unis fight, she really tried to turn the volume up on it. And at times it felt like too much to me uh, that I would, I would rather just had her continue to play it a little bit straighter as she had had done before her other title defenses. Uh, But yeah, man, especially like during the, even during the walkout to this fight, uh, I thought to myself, she has really embraced the idea of herself as this like, dominant force at 115 pounds as like really embraced the notion of herself as the greatest fighter in the world and and you know potentially the greatest women's fighter of all time and by contrast i thought rose namayunas looked really nervous both during the walkout of this fight and during the introductions just sort of standing over there uh like kind of visibly shaking and you know if you if you take all of those Anecdotal clues. I think we would have jumped to the conclusion Joanna Jajcic is going to handily win this thing, and then uh, Nama Yunus goes out there and and knocks her out in in three minutes and three seconds, which was super surprising to me. So if you if you run it back, I don't know what you get. And I think that that's one of the big questions that Joanna Jajcic is going to have to answer moving forward is who is she going to be, and who is she going to be inside her own mind, maybe even given the fact that she had embraced this dominant persona uh so thoroughly it seemed like. So um it'll be interesting to see how she is treated, both uh by fans of the sport and how she is able to return psychologically uh to to another fight just uh internally and how she handles it. Did it seem like
0: people uh were into that? dominant Joanna violence persona right up until they weren't? Did she take it just a little bit too far or did people change their minds about it or what?
1: I think, well, it's an easier thing to carry off when you win, right?
0: True, like, but even before the fight, it seemed yeah. like people were starting to sour on it a little bit well, on and the it, way she treated Rose and the way yeah. maybe Rose was not throwing anything back at you. And then it feels like you're bullying her.
1: Well, it felt like she had turned up the volume on it, right? It felt like she had taken the Joanna, ya J performances of old and like, amplified them for whatever reason before this this fight and I think for me it was kind of like eh maybe it's almost like we were trying a little bit too hard because one of the things that was awesome about Joanna Gajek like before this fight was how natural everything about her kind of seemed she seemed you know like uh she had like a quirky social media presence she wasn't necessarily like the cookie cutter Ronda Rousey style uh, female fighter that the UFC has liked to promote in the past. She had this sort of offbeat feeling about her uh, and that she was really just kind of being herself. And then who'd come fight time, she would turn into this scary alien that would crawl up your nose during the weigh-in and then just viciously beat the ever loving shit out of you for 25 minutes, which I, which I thought was awesome. And I think a lot of people did too. And during the lead up to this one, I was kind of like, Oh, man, it's, it, it feels almost like we are taking the, the Joanna Champion character and, like, making it too cartoonish almost. I don't well, know.
0: Doesn't that make it also though hard to wonder, like, if, you know, she had dialed up the whole presentation of her, her persona and style uh, and maybe even believed it while she was dialing it up, did that play a role in the way the fight played out?
1: Maybe, yeah. Maybe that's maybe that's one of the things that that led her to getting caught by a punch. Maybe she wasn't really taking Rose seriously, uh, as you said. And like you said, man, in three minutes and three seconds, it's hard to get a lot of data <laughs> with which to try to analyze what happened in this fight. Like, uh, it looked like it was gonna be a, a classic Joanna J. fight. She threw a couple of those uh, fluid and pinpoint combinations that she likes to throw. She was trying to work the the leg kick. Uh, Rose did catch her with a left hand early. It seemed like maybe a bit of foreshadowing, uh, as to what was about to happen a, a minute or so after that. Uh, but in the sport, isn't it? It's just so hard to tell. Like you just get punched and you get knocked out. <laughs> like, it's hard to know if like what contributed to that contributed to that, or if it was just, uh, you know, Rose's night, I guess you could say. The prop
0: bet on Nama Yunus by KOTKO 2,500, by the way. So props to you if you had that one.
1: Uh, before we wrap up this week, I w- let's talk a little bit about how fans at large will treat Joanna Jacek moving forward. Because like, clearly we saw with Ronda Rousey, and obviously Ronda was a different person, different uh, persona in a lot of ways, handled the loss much differently than it seems like Joanna Jacek is going to handle this loss. But there was just an outpouring of glee when Ronda Rousey lost in a way that, as we talked about around the time that it happened, I thought was kind of ugly. Uh, Do you think that Joanna Yajic can go on being this fan favorite, being, uh, well, she can't be Joanna champion until she gets the belt back if that happens. But, like, uh, are we going to pile on her in the same way that that we kind of piled on Ronda Rousey after her loss?
0: No. I, and I think you already see that. There's a little bit of piling on her, maybe. But I don't think there's the same kind of dancing on her grave thing. And part of it is in the way that she handles it. There's a big difference. You know, Ronda Rousey, uh, when she lost, she disappeared. Uh, you know, she was not exactly gracious in victory a lot of the times. And then when she lost, uh, you know, did her best to just kind of vanish. Wouldn't Wouldn't show up to the press conferences. uh, tried to go and hide out basically. And yeah, people did not really respond to that super well. Whereas Yen goes out there, gets upset by the biggest dog on the card and shows up to the press conference and wants to talk about it. It goes on the fortnight the next day or on, on Monday uh, wants to talk about it. Like, I think that that, that does make a difference in how people see you. If you, if you show up and you say, Hey, look, this is what happens sometimes in this game. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. I'm going to come back better. You know, people respect that. they, 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 appreciate the the competitor in you coming out and saying that. Uh, And so, yeah, I think that there will definitely be a difference. And also that some of it is the the farther up the tree you climb, the longer the fall is going to be down. And so Ronda Rousey was at that kind of like superstar level that, and to a point where people had either for that or the way she had treated some past opponents, maybe started to resent her. And so they took a, a certain glee in that, that I don't think you'll see necessarily with you, Annie and J chick, but it will be interesting to see, you know, how she formulates that comeback.
1: All right. Well, you want to do just saying stuff. Sure. We'll get out of here for this week, Ben, what is your just saying stuff this week?
0: Well, you know, earlier we mentioned the uh, Dana White saying 2017 biggest year so far, biggest year by far. I believe what he said, um, also mentioned, uh, the UFC saying that UFC 7 217 looked like it was going to be, you know, a monster pay per view. Uh, over a million buys, maybe setting records in Canada, uh, all good stuff. And so I'm just saying, did you notice what happened with the bonuses after this one? Because Dana White tells us there were so many great fights, so many great performances. They're not just going to do the regular, you know, four, uh, bonuses. Uh, instead we do five bonuses. George St. Pierre, TJ Dillashaw, Rose Namajunas. OSP and Ricardo Ramos, except that OSP and Ramos, they do not get a full bonus. They split one. They each get 25 grand instead of them both getting 50 grand, which is the normal price of the bonuses. And so I'm just saying these things can't all be true. And if they are, then it's not a good look. Because if you're telling us we had the best year for the company ever and we just had a huge pay per view, But we can't spend that extra 50 grand to make sure everybody gets a full size bonus, even though we are acknowledging that the fights were all awesome. That doesn't look great for you. And if you're telling us then that, you know, maybe the reason we have to split these bonuses in half kind of makes it seem like maybe you weren't having that great of a year. Because I'm just saying, there's something that doesn't add up about those things.
1: Just saying. Just saying. Well, Ben, maybe this says more about where I am in life than uh, anything else, but we talked a little bit earlier about uh, Paulo Costa going out and getting the uh, second-round TKO win over Johnny Hendricks in emphatic fashion on, on the uh, in the pay-per-view opener to UFC 217, and maybe it's just because I am a, a 38-year-old father of three. But when I see the studly, muscle-bound, beautiful 26 year old go out there and just run roughshod over the kind of soft 34 year old guy who are we talking about are we still talking about Johnny Hendricks i just feel like it's i it kind of makes it doesn't make me excited for Paulo Costa let's just say that it reminds me of the old comic strip where the bodybuilder kicks sand in a nerd's face and steals his girl like to me i come away from it thinking like Man, I just feel bad for Johnny Hendricks. Is your more marriage than on the I rocks? Feel, more than I feel happy for Paulo Costa. Did your wife say something about Paulo Costa that made you uncomfortable? No, she didn't watch it.
0: But if she had?
1: Although she did when I told her George St. Pierre was coming back. She had questions.
0: No, my wife observed several times that it seemed like George St. Pierre's rise from welterweight to middleweight was mostly in his butt.
1: Okay, well, do you want to do another Just Saying Stuff?
0: I mean, that's the reality, people. Okay. That's the reality. <laughs>
1: That's gonna do it for this this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week to tell you about all the stuff that happens at UFC Fight Night 120, uh Poye versus Pettis. And then do we got the very next week, UFC Fight Night 121, Fabricio Verdum versus Marcin Tibera. Oh yeah. It's the one everybody's been waiting for. Co main event, Beck Rawlings versus Joanne Calderwood. What? So We'll be doing that. We'll be talking about that. At least some.
0: I hope this has been very recharging.
1: <laughs> As of right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. That's got to be Fight Pass only, right? That can't be on your Fox Oh, no, it's on Fox Sports 1. Well, it was
0: supposed to be for BCO and Mark Hunt until Mark Hunt told everybody that uh, his brain is mush.
1: So they had to go out and find healthy brain fighter Marcin Tibera to come in and, and, and fight Faber Doom. To ruin his brain. All right. right. Makes glad, sense now, right? I'm glad, I'm glad that's where we're at. Yeah.